Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, September the 26th, 2023. AI yesterday and AI today, AI tomorrow, no doubt, too, on uh, Keenon. Yesterday, we did a show with uh, Bethann Patrick, the literary critic of the Los Angeles Times, talking about six speculative novels imagining a world saturated by AI. It's not hard to imagine all that. And the book she picked out as the best book about this imaginary AI future, which is not so imaginary these days in the age of um, chat GPT was uh, Kishuo Ishiguro's masterpiece, Clara and the Sun. It's a rather dark book, although perhaps not quite as dark as some of the other speculative fiction, imagining how AI is going to squeeze the last drops of humanity out of all of us. Uh, many other nonfiction writers have been on the show warning us about our AI future. But our guest today, I think, is unusually bright. Uh, w. Russell Newman, who everybody knows as Russ, is a longtime professor of computer technology and information technology. He's taught, um, he teaches now at NYU. He had t- taught at Tufts. He's the author of a number of interesting books on tech, AI, and media, and he has a new book out. It's out today, Evolutionary Intelligence, How Technology Will Make Us Smarter, and Russ is actually going against the grain. Most people seem to believe these days that technology is making us dumber. Russ is joining us from his home in the West Village. Congratulations, Russ, on the new book. Thank you. Andrew, squeeze every last drop of humanity? Really? Well, that's not me, Russ. That's everybody else saying that. Oh, oh okay, saying, okay, good. Uh, good, 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 good to hear. I'm just the host, Russ. So uh, you're unusually optimistic. Um, have you always been optimistic about tech? No, I'd like to argue that it's a, a balanced uh, a combination of concern and, uh, and hopefulness. Uh, my notion is that, um, and I sort of agree with those people who say these are really important issues to address. Uh, I don't agree with those that basically project human traits onto these computer systems and assume that Siri really can't wait to kill us. Uh, I think that's just a classic case of imagining that if something's intelligent, it's going to be intelligent in the same way that humans are. And the book is about how these computational systems can actually complement and correct for the kinds of errors that human cognition is so famous for. Uh, Before we get to the themes and arguments in the book, Russ, have you been taken by surprise by the explosion of generative AI, ChatGPT, and now this mania on, on the coasts, particularly where I am in Silicon Valley, for new AI technology? Uh, I I think everybody was surprised. I'm not sure. If you think about it, the term artificial intelligence was coined in the mid-1950s, and there's been uh, decades of uh, mixed failure and limited success. And so the spectacular results that came from the most recent uh, uh, tests that were done by OpenAI in 
GPT uh, three and four and chat GPT generated a, a, a wholly new, I don't know, order of magnitude, uh, a new paradigm for how creative and uh, evolved these systems are. So yeah, we were all surprised. I think, including the guys that uh, built the system. You use this word, Russ, evolved. You're not a biologist. Um, I'm not sure what your thoughts are on Charles Darwin and his theory of evolution. But there's certainly the notion of evolution seems to be in some ways central to your argument. You, you talk in your book about an evolutionary stage in human capacity and in human intelligence. Uh, are you influenced by Darwin or Darwinism or certainly evolutionism in your thinking? Uh, I am. And let me tell a short story. This short story is based on a fellow named Tomasello, a professor currently at Duke, who said, if you look at the evolution of the human species, we are 98 and 99% the same genetic makeup as our forebears, uh, various bonobos and chimpanzees. And yet our behavior is so distinctively different. There hasn't been enough th thousands or, or even millions of years since we split off from that genetic line of the uh, primates uh, to explain why we are so different. And he says, the secret is we talk to each other, we communicate, we work collectively, we share ideas. So our communication skills are what make us distinctive. And from that talking, we invented uh, technologies that made us stronger. We invented the wheel. So we were better at uh, getting around. And this is the next stage in a coevolution of human beings and our technologies, uh, the technology that will make us smarter. You present it as a, as a, a straight line narrative, a, a Whiggish version of history, of evolution, of progress. Have there been any mistakes? The invention of weapons, of gunpowder, of nuclear technology, Russ? Uh, well, you know the answer to that question is, of course, there's been mistakes. And of course, there have been misdirections. And any powerful tool in the hands of a malevolent individual can lead to malevolent uh, results. And so there's a chapter in the book called There Be Dragons, which raises, uh, I hope, a carefully balanced assessment of what we need to be careful about. But the key is to understand that the locus of control of this technology can be in the hands of humans, not in some uh, separate robotic device that has its own goals. We had uh, Simon Johnson, uh, another distinguished academic on the show recently. He wrote a book with Darren Akamoglu called Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. I'm sure you're familiar with the book. It was on the long list of the FT books of the year. It's on a lot of the, the best books of the year. Johnson is less a, a critic, and uh, Akamoglu and, and Johnson are less critics of technology more focusing on the way in which it's resulted in inequality in which this technology has been used and created by dominant classes to pursue their own interests. Do you address that issue in your book? I, I do indeed. And it's uh, a, a serious question. When any new technology comes out, it tends to be controlled by elites and it's expensive and inaccessible and may require some technical skill to make the best use of it. Uh, but the basic function of Moore's law and the lowering cost of 
computational capacities, and hopefully an open marketplace of competition among vendors, uh, the capacity for using uh, smart wearables, smart glasses, ultimately smart contact lenses will put the power of AI in the hands of everybody. But when it comes to AI, uh, Russ, we're not even in a Web 2.0 situation where we had new startups, Googles, and Facebooks challenging the old powers, Microsoft. It seems as if the dominant big tech companies, the Googles, the Microsofts, the Amazons, uh, the Apples are controlling everything about AI. There isn't even much of a, a, a startup ecosystem here. Where's the evidence that the benefits so far of AI are going to, so to speak, trickle down to everyone? Well, you're quite correct. Uh, however, it was OpenAI, which was indeed a startup, initially a nonprofit startup that got the ball rolling in the most recent uh, attention to uh, large language models. Um, and Anthropic is a, a spin-off of OpenAI, and uh, they're getting a lot of attention for their developments. So my view is that we'll see uh, a lot of competition because of the attention to this space. Um, but the ultimate control can be put in the hands of the customer, not the individual that designed the platform. Uh, so somebody who manufactures uh, hammers or manufactures pencils or manufactures typewriters uh, doesn't control what the typewriter says and how the hammer is used. Uh, that's, I think, a key takeaway. Yeah, I, I take your point, Russ, and I don't want to overdo this issue, but you mentioned Anthropic and OpenAI, both received enormous investments from big tech companies. OpenAI, of course, from Microsoft. Today, it was announced that Amazon have invested a significant amount of money, several hundred million dollars in Anthropic. Um, so these aren't traditional startups, and the big companies are, as any big company would do, are pursuing their own interests. So and whether it's glasses or computational systems or self-driving cars, uh, it, so far at least, it doesn't seem as if uh, the profits from this new technology are going to uh, trickle down to everybody else. Uh, I'm not sure uh, OpenAI is making a lot of profits yet. Uh, we're at a stage uh, you made a reference to the metaphor of Widow and 3.0. Yeah, we're at a very early stage, so it's not yet clear uh, what the level of profit-taking is going to be. And the point I'd like to make uh, to draw people's attention to this is if there are like five major uh, institutions or companies that are generating fundamental platforms, the real competition will be, be between different versions that have been tuned for special. So if you're a fan of uh, bird watching or a fan of uh, ancient Greek history, uh, there'll be uh, versions of these intelligent systems that have been fine-tuned for the community that has special use needs and hopefully will be controlled by competitors. Coming back to uh, the, your book, uh, which is just out today, Evolutionary Intelligence, How Technology Will Make Us Smarter. You mentioned that we're a couple of steps at least in evolutionary terms, from uh, our pre-human ancestors. Um, are we smart at the moment, Russ? When you say make us smarter, you're not suggesting that we're either smart or stupid. Are those useful terms? 
Uh, I think they are. I think we can come up with a pretty common sense and very useful definition of what intelligence is. Intelligence is a accurate assessment of the environment so that each of us can individually optimize based on whatever resources we have, optimize for the best results given our interests. Uh, what happens in the typical case of a human is that we misinterpret our environment and we have all sorts of cognitive shortcuts and laziness about thinking through options and we get stuck in old ways of doing things. So I object to the basic concept of the Turing test, the so-called test to see if a computer is really as smart as a human because the challenge for evolutionary intelligence is not a computer that's based on a human making all the same mistakes, but one that complements the human and is part of a co-evolutionary process. That's the ideal uh, future, Russ. But as so many writers and thinkers have noted, what happens when these machines become smarter than us? What happens if conceivably they acquire consciences of their own? Andrew, you're starting to sound like one of the doomers that is convinced that these these uh, systems are going to be thinking faster and, and smarter and will have all the same motivations that evolution gave humans, which had to compete with other humans and with other animals for scarce resources. Um, I just don't see the structure of these systems as having been evolved resources, competition and destruction of or competition with an enemy uh, that would lead to that natural behavior. And if you're worried about a real smart system doing something, uh, put your own AI system to work to protect you. Uh, the same technologies that might be attempting something negative can be thwarted by uh, a community that harnesses the power of AI to protect us. We are talking to the last optimist left in America, perhaps when it comes to AI, W. Russell Newman, otherwise known as Russ. He has a new book out, Evolutionary Intelligence, How Technology Will Make Us Smarter. I've cross-examined him in the first part. The second part, I wanted him to talk a little bit more about how how this new technology is indeed going to make us smarter. But I want to have a break. One thing that will certainly make us smarter is Liberties, uh, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, some of the best writing, published four times a year. Uh, we're going to run a short feature on Liberties, and then we'll be back with Russ uh, Newman to explain how AI may indeed make us smarter in the future. So stay with us, everyone. Don't go away. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can check out Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking with uh, W. Russell Newman, uh, Russ Newman, the author of a new book, Evolutionary Intelligence. It's just out today. Uh, it certainly will make us intelligent, more intelligent than we actually are. Uh, Russ, in your book, you talk about uh, AI as a broader evolutionary stage in human capacity. Explain a little bit more about what you mean by that. Well, it's kind of amazing that what makes us uh, uh, part of a community that is living together in villages and communities is only about 10,000 years old. 
uh, we just figured out how to basically uh, keep some animals in the same place so we don't have to chase them around and 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 find uh, random berries in the forest by uh, inventing agriculture. So that's a relatively recent invention. Uh, the replacement of gestures and grunts and pointing uh, with uh, articulate speech, including the capacity to articulate uh, uh, abstract notions is also relatively recent in human evolution. And then of course there's, everybody knows the industrial revolution uh, where we substituted machine power for human power to make us stronger. Um, as we move to the digital revolution, we've used uh, the technology of uh, digital uh, universal uh, internet communications to communicate with each other. The next stage is using that to not just communicate, but to evaluate, to use a combination of inputs and outputs to advise us, not to direct us. Uh, and uh, that coevolution of human perception and, and uh, the capacity to put these technologies to work for our benefit uh, makes me an optimist. It all sounds good, Russ. Uh, you're one of the few people, as I said, to paint a positive future. Uh, but perhaps you might be a bit more concrete. As I said, uh, yesterday we had Bethann Patrick, the literary critic of the LA Times, on talking about imagining a, a world in, in which uh, AI dominates. We've done a number of shows on the impact of AI on writers. Some people believe that it will make redi writers redundant. Be a little bit more concrete in terms of your optimism. How is AI going to make writers more intelligent, more productive, and perhaps even happier? Writers tend to be rather miserable souls, as I'm sure you know. <laughs> Challenge the premise, as you articulated it, that AI will dominate. Uh, AI is a tool. Uh, writers will dominate, and they will have increased capacity to uh, to design, to evaluate, to experiment and get feedback from these intelligent systems. So for a concrete example, let's think about this notion of how these systems might be not based on human intelligence, but complementary to human intelligence. The classic case is when you want something, you can't imagine that what you want is not the next best thing and next in line. So we have a, a confirmation bias. We look in the environment for data that supports our presumptions. A gentle nudge from us can warn us that, well, maybe you ought to look at the other side and not just presume that the cherry-picked examples that you've picked are going to be the base, best basis for making a decision. A lot of people, uh, Russ, have worried about privacy, that AI will reveal everything about us, even our souls or our inner world. You're more optimistic on the privacy front. Why? Well, if I could turn tables on you, uh, Andrew, and ask a question, uh, what do you think information about you as an active person on the internet is worth every year to the big tech companies? Uh, give, give me a dollar estimate about what you think your information about you is worth. Me personally? Yep. Yep. Very little. Five cents, maybe. Okay. Five cents. Okay. The answer is a thousand dollars. There's advertising. There are all kinds of support for uh, online enterprises where advertisers want to be able to target their marketing message to people who have interests. And uh, your interests would be reflected in the kind of ads you see online. The industry currently, if you take the total amount of advertising and divide it by the number of active adults, 
online in the United States comes out to about $1,000 per person per year. So my proposal is, if you don't want to have anything uh, targeted at you, use AI to defend and build a moat around you so none of the information will leave about your preferences and none of the marketing will come in. However, if you're open in the fact that you like chocolates and are, are fond of particular types of wines and don't mind some marketing of those products, then you basically have your AI system negotiate with the vendors and say, okay, 50-50, you keep 500 bucks, give me 500 bucks for my information. After all, it's my information. Now, you couldn't negotiate with each different website that you visited, but your AI can. Well, that sounds rather, I have to admit, that sounds rather utopian. Uh, why would Google agree to do that? Or why would Facebook or Amazon agree to do that? The AIs can't force them to do this. Yes, yes they can. Uh, when you enter into a exchange for information with a product vendor, the privacy uh, uh, policies are such that if you took the time to read them and execute them, and use the technologies and the manipulation of the cookie databases correctly, you can be an anonymous user of the internet. It takes a lot of effort, and that's where the AI comes in. But it would require interfaces, startups to, to, to have products or systems that will empower people to do this. Okay, so if a AI comes up and you... You're not particularly, let's say, uh, I'm not sure of your own, maybe you are more concerned than the average individuals about privacy. But if you're kind of open and don't mind getting marketing that targets various interests, uh, you're an avid tennis fan and purchase a lot of tennis equipment, and you kind of appreciate getting occasional ads about the latest coming from the tennis vendors, uh, then you say, okay, here's an independent company that's willing to basically derive the benefit of my information, sell it and share the profits with me. And those would be uh, neighbors of yours in, in the Silicon Valley that will be starting these kind of companies up because the little the personally controlled AIs make it possible. You believe and you argue in the book, Russ, that digital technologies will compensate for human weakness. Could you give me some examples of the type of weakness that they'll compensate for and how this will work? Okay, we tend to uh, rely on the on something that worked the last time, without appreciating how the invented and might need to reevaluate the the different techniques we've got for get, being successful in in our environment, and the AI will do the work of updating us on new. As I said before, we tend to try to confirm our own biases, and the AI, because it has a no particular motivation to confirm your previous judgments would have a gentle, intelligent, per hopefully persuasive argument about, well, you ought to examine some of the other options that you have not yet examined. And you argue in the book that we need to comp computationally compensate for ourselves. You believe that AI will be able to do this. The current internet seems to deepen our, our biases, our anger, create echo chambers, challenge even the idea of truth. We've done many, many shows on that. How can AI help that? And don't we need to recognize that we need to, comp it to, to borrow your language, 
computationally compensate for ourselves. And most people don't think they need that comp compensation. Most people think they know, they, they know everything and that they don't need a, an AI to educate themselves. Uh, you're quite correct. And if I may, let me recommend another very interesting author you might consider uh, for including in your review of, of leading thinkers. His name is Michael Mann, and he's just published a book called On War. And what he does is he looks at all of the decisions that were made by various people uh, most recently, Russia's Putin saying, boy, I'm going to win this war. I've got a great army and the enemy is pretty weak. And boy, is this going to be a short war and it's going to be great. And uh, it turns out that that was the thinking when the wars get started. And as they continue, uh, the evidence and uh, unfortunately, some of the military experts reinforce those uh, impulses. So there's an example of a, a straightforward, not confirmation bias based evaluation of whether it's a good idea to start a war might prevent one. What about sorting out the propaganda from the truth? How can AI help us with determining what is and isn't true and determining what is or isn't propaganda? Uh, well, some people, uh, some people, as, as you may have, have guessed my, my next response, some people can't handle the truth. Uh, some people enjoy being playful. And uh, one of my favorite quotations was from some years ago, a Trump supporter, when he was originally candidating, uh, be, being a candidate for president, and was supporting the idea of building a wall along the border between the United States and Mexico. And the interviewer asked this Trump supporter, do you think the wall will work? And the supporter candidly said, no, nah, I don't think it would actually work. But I just like the fact that it's there. So there's all of this symbolic investment in believing various kinds of symbolic things. And, you know, that's the, that's the human condition. But when it comes to making hard decisions, uh, like something like going to war or making a major um, uh, purchase decision, a home, uh, uh, a, a major career decision, uh, whether to uh, pursue an academic career or a business career, those kinds of things, there's a lot of information that could be provided by a personally attuned artificial intelligence agent. You've talked about symbolic stuff that we just rely on things, even though we know they're not going to make any difference. I suspect, and this may include myself, that we, we know that regulation isn't going to make a lot of difference, but there's some symbolic certainty there that at least we can, we can hope that government will make an effort, even if it's going to fail. I know you're not enormously optimistic about regulating this new technology. Is that because you don't think government can have any impact? Uh, in order to regulate artificial intelligence, you need to be able to define it. And part of the argument of the evolutionary intelligence book is that these are basically algorithmic systems they started out with simple algorithms that if it's raining, take umbrella, a very simple algorithm. And as they get more and more complicated, the modern systems, the chat GPTs have uh, 180 billion different parameters derived from a uh, review of billions of words uh, and images on the web. These complicated systems provide a really unique and new uh, uh, derive a better understanding of our environment from uh, from their from their wisdom. Finally, uh, Russ, 
Mui, as I said at the beginning of the show, in September of 2023, 25 years, 27 years, we'll be in the middle of the 21st century. Give me a picture of a world dominated by AI that's attractive for you in 25, 27 years. Where can we be uh, in, in 2050 uh, that will mark a, a self-evident uh, evolution of intelligence? How can we get to a point that technology, not how, but what will this place look like? You've talked about how we can do it, but, but describe this place in the middle of the 21st century, a world if not dominated, permeated, saturated with AI, certainly influenced by it. Okay, this is wonderful uh, uh, short snippets on YouTube of an older father or grandfather showing a uh, 45 RPM record or a uh, dial telephone to a youngster. And the youngster is completely befuddled by what this possibly could be and what it could possibly do. And currently, we have a sense of what a computer is. It's a, a laptop, maybe a desktop. Maybe we have a sense that the uh, smartphone in our pocket is actually a computer. That physical entity that we now think of as a separate device that we punch buttons and get it to do things is going to blend into our own existence and perception as the computer me melts into our wearables, our glasses, and ultimately our contact lenses as it helps us more accurately perceive the world. And our bodies? Uh, I have a section that talks about this delicate issue. Uh, your, your, uh, your neighbor, Elon Musk's company, Neuralink in San Francisco, has been experimenting with uh, moving into the brain itself. And my hope is that almost all of this can be done by communicating through our senses of uh, sight and sound and uh, tactile input and that all of this can happen without the need to actually uh, drill a hole in the brain and, and connect some electrodes. So I'm, I'm not a big fan of uh, BCI, this notion of direct uh, brain-computer interface. 